Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. I am your host, Dr. Kevin. And for today's episode, we are going to talk about myths when it comes to back pain. And particularly, we're going to not pick on anybody here today, but there has been some celebrities out there with back pain. And the problem with that is when celebrities have something happen to them, it gets advertised, it gets you know pushed through the media. Everybody's very interested in what celebrities are doing for whatever reason. And this can foster a lot of poor beliefs. I'm just going to put it that way. We can, we can some bad information out there. It can, can create uh, a lot of um, really disempowering beliefs, beliefs that people should, you know, really need to look carefully for because what we think and we believe has huge correlations with our health. And I haven't talked about that yet. I don't think, but really these, the thought patterns that we have, the beliefs that we have about our bodies, the beliefs that we have about our abilities to perform actions or not have substantial, substantial effects upon our health. So we're just going to talk about these in back pain today. Now, a little backstory on this is in Google, if you happen to use, um, you know, I use Gmail for my primary email uh, provider. And one of the things I like about it is it, you know, works really well with Google and all this stuff. So I have alerts set up. What that means is every week I have about four or five different topics that the the big news articles when they come out or big events when it comes out with relating to those particular things I'm looking for, I get a weekly summary. And every Saturday they come into my, inbo- in my inbox and one of them is back pain. And I'll tell you, I have a very hard time opening that email every week because every week I almost always, my pulse starts rating, my, my blood pressure is going up. Um, I start gritting my teeth because the amount of bad information when it comes to back pain is unbelievable. Now, part of this has to do because back pain is so common. It's estimated that 80 to 90% of us are going to have an episode, at least one episode of back pain sometime in our lives. And I'm always wondering who those other 10 or 20% are. I think probably they have just forgotten those episodes. So it's if you have a back, you're going to have back pain at some point. You're going to have something that occurs. The problem is, is that most back pain, I mean, the vast majority of back pain will get better on its own. And what has been shown time and time and time and time again is that the more that we medicalize back pain, the more aggressive that we are with the treatment, and I'm saying that sort of um, loosely there, of back pain, but the, the worse the outcomes are getting. And I may have mentioned these a couple of times in the past, but if you look just at the, the, the outcomes associated with back pain over the last 20 years, uh, and there was a big survey done called the U.S. State of Health, 1990 to 2010. And if you look at back pain, back pain is one of the top disablers. In fact, it is the, the number one reason for disability for people under the age of 45. But the we have not changed the outcomes with it. People aren't getting better, meaning there was about the same amount of people that were having back pain for the population, size of the population back then in 1990, and the same amount of number of people disabled with it. And when you look 20 years later, 
that seemed to increase with the size of the population. I mean, we did not have substantial changes on either preventing back pain, helping people feel better, or reversing the risk of disability. Now, this is despite rampant, rampant increases in back surgeries, injections, you know, back surgeries alone, depending on the type of back surgery you're looking at, have had increases in the range of like 75 to 400%. Uh, if you look at the injections, the stuff that I was commonly doing back in the days when I was very just medicalized with this stuff, um, those injections had been anywhere from 100 to 700%, depending on the nature of them. If you look at the expenses related to back pain, it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, direct costs associated with back pain alone, direct meaning treatment costs, so surgeries, injections, seeing the doctor and such, are around $100 million. And then you can basically put another $200 million for indirect costs. And what indirect costs then are loss of productivity, you know, people's inability to work, uh, inability to um, provide for their families and things like that, so you're not working anymore. So it is a huge problem. And we have definitely not done anything to improve it, despite, despite, as I said, all these articles that I'm getting in these pseudo ads, or I should say pseudo articles saying that there's some new amazing treatment out there, which when you really look at it are not, um, they're not even articles. They're basically media or advertising being disguised as articles. There's these little firms out there that you can pay them and they will dispense your, you know, you know, send out a news announcement saying that there's this wonderful new, new exciting discovery and they'll disguise it as sort of a news article and it is not. These are advertising, uh, misleading advertising. And every week, every week I have multiple um, references in there talking about these new treatments, new this, blah, 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 new magic bullets. And it's all a bunch of garbage. So anyway, uh, a couple weeks ago, I checked in that folder, went through my little fit like I'm doing right now, but there was a really, really, really good post in there. And it was from a blog that I had not been familiar with in the past called uh, Denver Fitness Journal. And what they did is they were talking about Tiger Woods and back pain because Tiger Woods keeps coming up in these alerts every week because he talks about his back pain, how he's moving, you know, not being able to golf and things. And he referenced another blog called, and I'm going to screw this up because it's a very weird way to name it, BMJ or BJSM blog. I I will link that. I'll put a direct link in the podcast show notes so that you can visit there. But this had an excellent, excellent summary and discussion about quotes uh, that, that Tiger Woods said about his back pain and the themes that they sort of bring into focus. Okay, so what I would like to do is I'm going to use the questions uh, that were discussed over there at that B, I'm I'm sorry, I'm screwing this up so bad, BJSM blogspot, and this is from Dr. Peter O'Sullivan, who is a doctor in physical therapy down in Australia, and I'm going to use those exact quotes that he was using in an article there, and then I'm also going to provide my own commentary on here. All right, so here we go. Top five myths about back pain. being discussed when it comes to Tiger Woods here. All right, so number one, quote, Tiger has a pinched nerve in his back causing his back pain, end quote. And follow on with this is what is the role of imaging for the diagnosis of back pain? All right, well, you touched on this in the past. Number one, you have to understand what pain is. All right, 
Pain is not a nerve. Pain is not a bone. Pain is not a skin. Now, yes, we can cut you, break a bone, poke a nerve, pinch a nerve, and you will have a resultant pain experience. But the actual pain is not from that physical structure. All right. The structure may provide just a nerve signal that goes to your brain. So I, I always want to think about that because the first thing we need to do is cut those apart. People have had broken legs. People have had been stabbed or shot with bullets. But the, the context of that injury, meaning if they were in a highly charged environment, say when you were in combat, say you were you know, in a car accident and you were just in this fight or flight response, your whole experience may be different. You may not even have any pain at that time. That signal coming from your body, though, is still there. Your body is still sending a nociceptive spark from your body to your brain, but your brain is turning off that reception and is not listening to it. It's focusing on different areas. So when we think of brain, brain is always into the pain or into the brain. The brain itself is, has to be awake. It has to be focused on it in order for it to cause pain. So pinch nerve causing back pain. Yes, there could be a pinch nerve that is just if it was present causing a nociceptive signal. It doesn't cause pain. The pain is the result and experience from it. Now, when it comes to the role of imaging for the diagnosis of back pain, you don't, okay? Unless someone has risk factors for horrible, awful things in back pain, and what I mean when it comes to horrible, awful things is you can have an infection in your back, you know, bacterial pus pocket back there, or if you have a history where you were in a, like a big car accident um, and there would be other findings associated when we're thinking bones are broken, or you're worried of someone bleeding into their back, that's really bad too. Uh, or if you had a history of cancer and certain ages and things and you're worried about the back, the, the, the signals coming from the back because that you have a big cancer in your back pushing on the little nociceptive nerves in there, you don't want to get imaging. As we increase the amount of imaging, particularly early imaging, meaning imaging within the first four, four weeks of having back pain, the number of people um, that have chronic back pain seems to get worse. It does not predict future back pain. Um, it doesn't seem to prevent anybody from disability. And in fact, as I said, the earlier imaging that you get seems that it would be, there's a trend that you may have increasing risk of disability. You won't know why is that? It was because when we read those films, or not me, but you know, when the radiologist does and then um, we, we interpret them for our patients, we look at the structures are there. Now we often don't put that in context. So we'll tell you, you have got you know, arthritic spurs here, or bulging discs here, or, or uh, a degenerative disc there. We forget to say, if we had taken an image of your back, we take an MRI or X-ray of your back when you were not in any pain, there, it is very, very likely you would have had similar structures previously. Okay. However, now that we've told you that you have this new episode of back pain and now you have a bulging disc or a little arthritis or something, we fixate on that and say, well, that's probably where the source of your pain is. And it's not true. We don't know this. We have a very, very poor understanding of this whole complex and entity when it comes to back pain overall. And an easy way that I, that, that, that I could say you could think about this is if all back pain, all this back pain that people are talking about are from disc degeneration or bulging discs or whatever the case may be, then we would have significantly less back pain because a lot of the surgeries that we do are designed to tr supposedly treat these degenerative discs and bulging discs when they're doing back fusions and they're stabilizing those areas and they're putting screws in your back so they don't move. 
And what we do know is that when you look at back surgery and outcomes, the only thing that has been linked well to see how people are going to improve after back surgery has nothing to do with what they see on imaging. It has nothing to do with the x-ray, the MRI, or anything else. It has to do more with the way that person is thinking, the way they have an outlook on life, uh, the way that uh, the lack of you know significant amounts of depression or anxiety, uh, these other things that amplify the pain experience. Imaging for fusion has not been correlated with outcomes. All right. So number one, pinched nerve. Let's talk about when we talk about pinched nerves, let's not say that they're the source of the pain. They're just a source of a signal to the brain. The brain makes that into pain. And when it comes to a role of imaging for the diagnosis of back pain, what imaging does is it looks for things that you don't want to see. Bad, bad things, infections, broken bones, cancers, big pockets of bloods and things. And outside of that, imaging does not tell us much good. And in a lot of ways, it can be harmful. All right. So if you do have back pain and someone does do an MRI or an X of your back, what I encourage you to do is not ask for the results. Don't read the radiology report. Just ask, what does it not show? Does it show cancer? No. Does it show an infection in my back? No. Does it show big broken bones and that uh, are, I'm in danger of getting paralyzed from? And by the way, if you actually had those, you would have some symptoms in your legs and lower body. Uh, but if that doesn't show in there or if you don't have any bleeding, then you don't want to know about bulging discs or anything else. All right. You don't want to know. All right. Number two. Tiger had a microdiscectomy for a pinched nerve, which had lasted for several months. What is the role of microdiscectomy for the management of back pain? Well, this is where it gets a little kooky. Because the way they talk about back pain, or at least all the Tiger Wood articles that I've seen, he talks about back pain being, and it sounds like it's actually central back pain, meaning it is located in his back. All right. And when you're really looking at back pain from a medical perspective, you have to divide it into types. There's back pain that's in the back, like right on your back. You take your finger, you poke it. You know, it's right in that area in the back, middle of the back. Or there's back pain that's down your leg. We often call this sciatica, that radiating back or that radiating pain that seems to come from your back and shoots down your leg. Now, a lot of times with that sciatica type pain, that radiating back pain that we commonly associate with a pinched nerve, and a pinched nerve can cause that signal that will have that pain experience associated with it, the most amount of pain that you have is in your leg, not your back. And if you ask, ask somebody who's got uh, a compressed nerve that is sending a nociceptive signal that the brain then causes to have a pain experience around. Remember, it has to be awake, has to be focused on it, and that brain takes that signal and says, ah, there's something going on down in my back and leg. They will tell you that the worst pain is in the leg. And the follow-up question that I used to use with this was, if you only had a choice of having one pain gone, meaning your back or your leg, which one would you pick? And people who have a compressed nerve squeezing and then causing this, this pain experience of this leg predominant pain, choose that leg pain. That leg pain is bad. Now, I never got the impression from reading all these articles on Tiger that he had a lot of leg pain. I just said it was back pain. And here's the kicker. Microdisectomies, these, these, where they go in and they chop off these little uh, areas where, the, where your discs have squeezed out a little bit. And as I said, these can, you can have these with no pain at all. If the MRI people in all sorts of different age groups, you will see people who have pinched nerves, some herniated disc, and they have no pain. So again, it becomes a little bit harder to kind of say these in apple, apples to apples comparison here, but microdiscectomy is for the leg pain. It is not for back pain, despite the fact that it's commonly done. 
as I said, people will have back pain. They get these MRIs. There will be a bulging disc or a or a or disc herniation, and then people say, "Well, that must be where all your pain is coming from," and they forget to look at the whole picture. This bulging disc. If you're doing a microdiscectomy, it's for leg pain, not back pain. All right. Now, Tiger had a microdiscectomy done back in March. Uh, they did cut off a piece of his disc for his back pain. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and he said it was better. But he had some interesting points after the surgery is done, saying that, yes, my back pain seems to be is doing great, but I'm having a lot of soreness, and that's at the area of incision. Now, what this has sort of done, or at least that statement kind of says, is that overall he wasn't any better after his back surgery was done. He just changed the location of his pain. So instead of being a deeper back pain, he had more of a superficial back pain, which is sort of an interesting thing we're not going to get into today. Now, when would you have a microdiscectomy, and when would you expect to be beneficial? As I said, it's for leg-predominant pain, but really, it's not for the pain. It's when you have, okay, if you have a pinched nerve, or we're going to say is you have a little disc squeezing a nerve, and that nerve is getting pinched, now it is going to have some uh, difficult things apart uh, that are happening with it, meaning if there are motor things, like your ability to move your leg may become impaired because that nerve is getting squeezed. And if you have weakness associated with that particular nerve root, again, has to be that particular nerve root that is being squeezed, then it may it may make sense to have surgery. All right, may. Um, it's a difficult call, though, and because if you have mild leg weakness, in some situations it can get better on its own. And even if you have surgery, there's a risk that that weakness will not improve. But that's why we have surgeons if you want to find a good spine surgeon, which unfortunately is a little bit difficult to do because of there's yeah, there's just so much bad information out there. Um, but anyway, so Tiger Woods had a microdiscectomy, which is a surgery for leg predominant pain. Best indicators are when you have leg weakness, which didn't get an impression he was having any sort of leg weakness or these things. With his back pain, his back pain seemed to be predominantly in the middle of his back. Doesn't make any sense. Did say it got better, but at the same token, he had a lot of pain at the site of injury. So overall, if we would say functionally, from pre-surgery to post-surgery, didn't sound like he improved that much, if at all. All right, so number three now. Here's another quote from Tiger Woods. My sacrum was out of place and was put back in by the physio. The follow-up on this one being, what role do manual therapies play to treat back pain? Now, I'm going to uh, go over a little bit of what Dr. O'Sullivan here was talking about because he is the doctorate in physical therapy. They do much more than manual therapies. Uh, I am an osteopathic physician, which means I was trained in manual medicine when I was in medical school. But I will also tell you that I didn't do a lot of it, uh, and those physical therapists are quite good. Now, his, co his comment on this was that passive manual therapies do not prevent or change the natural history of back pain. And that's true. That's a lot of the papers have been showing. They have a limited role in the management of persistent back pain disorders, absolutely. And they can provide short-term pain relief. Again, I completely agree with that. Um, unfortunately, and this is my words here, is the beliefs as such as, and quote, your sacrum, pelvis, or back of, is out of place are very common among, are common among clinicians, end quote. True. And that's, and that's the words that we use. And when we use these words and you're thinking that your sacrum is popped out or your back is popped out and these bones somehow are like moving all over, bones in your body, guys, are fairly well stabilized. We have very, very strong structures called ligaments that are holding them together. 
Then you have the entire musculoskeletal cage that is really designed to keep these bones together uh, because when they're, if they're loose and popping around, you, you can't function very well. All right. And so these bones and stuff are made to do well. And they don't just just pop out at once and come in. Most of the time when people are experiencing these things, it's more than likely some sort of muscle spasm. And as Dr. O'Sullivan was talking about, when you have manual therapies, this includes osteopathic manipulative medicine, physical therapy, massage therapy, chiropractic, etc. It's really moving more of on the muscles themselves. And what we also may be doing is there's touch involved. When we touch people and people are in a supportive environment, that changes the perception of pain and changes that pain experience. Um, there, when you are pressing something with your hands, you activate different nerve fibers in your body. Those nerve fibers have a tendency to overwhelm those smaller nociceptive fibers. Uh, an easy way to think about this is if you are uh, using a hammer and you smash your thumb, oftentimes the first thing that you do is you grab your thumb and you start pushing it really hard with your fingers. And it seems to help the pain a little bit. Well, why is this? Is because you are overwhelming the transition of those nociceptive fibers. Remember, I said the nociceptive fibers, fibers are just sending a nerve signal to your brain that your brain can then take that signal and then says, eh, what do we do with it? What's the nature of the, of the injury? What's the contacts? Where are we? What's the threat level? Blah, blah, blah. And generates a pain experience. Well, when you grab that thumb after you've hit it with a hammer and you're overwhelming it, you're pushing on it, you're sending a different signal from larger nerves, these pain or these pressure type sensory nerves, and those get processed a little bit differently. And they don't, for most people, be are, uh, have a significant pain experience associated with them. Now, if you do have a chronic pain, meaning you've had pains for long durations of time, there is a there's a change in the way that your brain perceives input from your body, and it becomes almost sensitized. And what happens then is those nerve signals, even from that are from non-nociceptive nerves, again the non-awareness uh, nerves that are saying, "Hey, something's down here. You need to do something about me." But even pain, uh, pressure or touch. Uh, nerve cells can then be perceived as pain because again there's a, a central component in chronic pain your your brain starts getting sensitized and takes that information and processes it differently now manual therapies in my mind are great for short-term pain relief okay it feels good to get a massage it feels good to have the manipulation done i will tell you it, it does one of my favorite classes in medical school was when we did manipulation because we did it on each other and it felt good but the problem I have is the beliefs that it can foster. Because just like in this, this particular point, when you saw my sacrum is out of place, people start believing that these things are popping out of place. And even worse to me is that to control their pain, they need some sort of external source to do it for them. Meaning they need the, uh, you know, the massage therapist needs to massage them, the chiropractor needs to adjust them, the osteopath needs to adjust them, whatever their case may be. Now, you can take this on to an entirely different level outside of manual therapies, meaning outside of just people touching you, and even use this as an example of what the problem is when we talk about injections, needles and things, epidural steroid injections for the treatment of back pain. Because what those do is it fosters the belief, again, that I have this horrible pain, something is wrong, this injection, this external thing I need to control my pain. And as we touched on in previous episodes, what this fosters then is this external locus of control. You stop looking at things that you can do to control your own experience of pain, and you start putting a false belief in a lot of ways in somebody else 
has a responsibility or the power to control your pain for you. So what happens is we condition people and then they think, oh, I need to go get a manipulation every four weeks or I need an injection every three months or whatever the case may be. They foster bad beliefs. And um, as I said, I, you know, manual therapies aren't as bad as things such as surgery, which do that in somewhat similar way. Certainly injections, which have a tendency to do that. Um, and maybe some people say, well, would argue with me, well, at least they're not having surgery and injections. Yes, that's true. But overall, is that person going to be better off long term? And I would argue, no, they haven't learned if they're, if, you know, if someone's doing manipulation and doesn't tell you tools that you can do to take control of your own pain, your own pain experience, things that you can do to stay healthy, uh, you know, focusing on the fundamental for movement, you know, every day, stretching, making sure they're eating the right foods, fostering a good social environment, taking care of stress. Stress is a huge propagator of pain um, and avoiding toxic things like smoking, which we know has has worse associations with particularly with back pain or toxic people. Um, I don't think I've talked about those studies yet, but there's a, you know, when people have um, different mindsets, beliefs are in different situations when they're irritating or aggravating people around them, they have more back pain. But if we're not doing anything to correct those underlying beliefs or to improve or for empower people with a belief that they can take control of their life and take control of their pain, I don't think we're doing them much good. All right. Yeah, maybe they're not having surgery, uh, but we're not, you know, really providing them the tools. We're not really encouraging them to go out uh, and be able to take care of themselves. All right, here's another one. I think this is number five or four. The quote is, I need to strengthen my core to get back to golf pain again. Now, what is the role of core stability and training? I'm going to use, again, uh, Dr. O'Sullivan's answer on this, and I'll put my commentaries in here. And, and his was, working the core, that was quote, end quote, has become a huge focus of rehabilitation of athletes and non-athletes in recent years, period. The belief that the spine's stabilizing muscles become inhibited with back pain, rendering the spine unstable and vulnerable drives this. That's a long way of saying is uh, everybody likes to talk about core stability. And if you Google core, there's about 16 different exercises, that's programs that you can buy. Uh, and so that what this makes us think that there's this huge association with with um, core strength and back pain. All right. I'm returning to Dr. O'Sullivan here. Yet growing evidence tells us that disabling persistent back pain disorders are often associated with increased trunk muscle co-contraction earlier activation of the transverse abdominal wall and an inability to relax the spine stabilizing muscles such as lumbar multifidus. And what that is basically saying, we're going to just kind of decipher that again, is that when you people who are having these this, uh, this persistent disabling back pain, they often have more muscle activation in certain muscle groups in those core muscles. All right. And that sort of makes sense um, when you're looking at back pain and we start when we start looking at the whole entity of back pain uh, and something called fear avoidance beliefs, when we're, we're when people have back pain, the worst outcomes with back pain come from people who have fear of movement. All right. That's the number one risk factor for disability is fear of movement. People who are like, I can't move because my back pain, I'm scared to do it. And if you kind of think of that process and that 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 makes sense because they're almost having increased muscle activation in their body where it is splinting. You're so afraid. You're thinking so much about it. You're keeping your body in these stiff postures where you're splinting. These little teeny muscles in certain areas are then contracting much more than they should. You're losing flexibility and things. Now, uh, he also goes on further about different types of stability, uh, stabilization training uh, as compared to various forms of exercise, manual therapy, and placebo. And what he quotes, Dr. Sullivan quotes in, in 
his blog post on this was that the, the studies highlight that this approach, none of these approaches seem to be superior to other active therapies and only marginally superior to a poor placebo, uh, which isn't, you know, placebo actually is, can be very, very powerful. And I'm assuming a poor placebo here means one that doesn't have a very good supportive environment. Um, and they also, these core programs have only have minimal changes in pain and moderate reductions in, in disability. And interestingly, what recent studies associated with stabilization, these core programs, the ones who do best are the ones where the patients reduced catastrophizing. And what catastrophizing is, is like the worst form of fear when it comes to, and it's not just, it doesn't, it's not just for back pain. It's for a host of different medical conditions. Catastrophizing is when something occurs and what you do is you anticipate the worst case scenario. It's very much related to anxiety. And it's like you pull your back and all of a sudden you're thinking, oh my God, I pulled a muscle on my back. It must mean I broke my back. I'm going to be paralyzed and then I'm going to be disabled. I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to be thrown on the seat and become homeless. And again, not to put light on catastrophizing because it's very, very serious, but catastrophizing, fear of movement is huge when it comes to back pain. And so this particular, these newer studies are predicting the best results on people who these fear beliefs are improving rather than the muscle pattern, all right? And this is a common thing that you're going to see when you look at back pain across the spectrum. Back pain, as I, t I touched on before, it is not MRIs, physical exam, or anything else that predicts outcomes for people who, who have surgery for back pain. It is fear avoidance, police catastrophizing, these other fear-based uh, aspects where people have these poor, these, these bad beliefs where they're believing there's something horrible going on in their back and they have fear of movement and uh, are predicting the worst case scenarios. If we start talking about if these fears, we start encouraging people to move, we start encouraging people and empowering them to take care of their health, these people do better versus ones who are not getting that education, who are not understanding these things about their body and are instead going into this external locus of control or this external realm where, oh, it must, the doctor needs to do this for me or it must be the physical therapist needs to do this for me and that's because my bustles are so bad and nothing else is going to work, right? Those aren't getting people well. Right. And he ends with some interesting things here. Uh, and I've kind of touched about these in the past on several episodes because this is really, it's not just back pain. All right. So the last thing that they do, that he does in this article is he says, what should clinicians do? The paradigm shift required for managing a complex multidimensional problem like back pain. You know, what, 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 what does that leave for clinicians? What it leaves for, you know, doctors? What it leaves for uh, physical therapists or anybody else when it comes to these complex conditions like back pain? Because back pain, as I said, is much more complex than people give it credit for. And one of the worst things that we've done over the last 20, 30 years, particularly, is we have this, just put this assumption out there that back pain is the structural thing, and it isn't. First of all, as I said, pain, I, I don't want people to think of body when they think of pain. When you hear pain, think brain, because you have to have an awake brain to process it. And there's so much more going on in there. There's so much more in the way the body processes signals from the, or the brain processes signals from the, from the, 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 from the body that influence this pain experience than anything else that you really have to focus on the brain here. Stop thinking body when it comes to pain. In fact, if you take and you poke yourself with the needle right now, I want you to realize that the pain that you're feeling is not where that needle is poking you. All that, that needle is doing, it is sending a little nociceptive signal, a little attention getter up into your brain, but it is your brain that generates that pain. And if you were in a situation 
where we change the environment, change the context of that, change whatever. We put you, maybe you were highly distracted by something, that feeling would change significantly. And I used to tell people when they came in, you know, all, and this may sound like I'm talking woo-woo, but it is not, it's not woo-woo. It, it, this is really the way that the brain works. And just like if you smash your, your, uh, your finger with a hammer and you overwhelm that signal, that, that those nociceptive signals with a new one and you perceive it a little bit differently, think about stubbing your toe. And I used to give examples of this with patients all the time. I'd say, well, if you stubbed your toe, most of the time you don't feel it very long. Like, particularly, if you stubbed your toe and it happened while you were going up the stairs because you were going to get your $30 million lottery check or whatever the case may be. You would probably hit your toe. You may not even feel it, but if you did, you would feel it just for seconds. Heck, if it was that much, that much of a, of a really highly charged situation and you're getting $30 million, you may even break your toe and you're not going to notice it right then. However, let's say you are at work and you're at a job that you hate and you're having a very, very stressful day you have a bunch of clients or whatever, people yelling at the phone, and then you get a call to go to your, bo- your boss's office, and you don't like your boss, you have a very bad relationship with, with him, uh, and you're scared that he's going to be firing you or you're going to be let go. Maybe they're downsizing the company or whatever the case may be. And on that walk, with all that other stuff going on, you stub your toe then. I can virtually guarantee it's going to feel worse. You're going to feel it longer, uh, and it is going to persist much, much longer than stubbing your toe going up to get your lottery tech. Pain is both much more complex than we give it credit for. When it comes to back pain, it is much more complex than we get credit for. Luckily, you know, when it comes to back pain, it's just like the fundamental four for other chronic medical conditions. It's really making sure that you move. If you're not moving with back pain, it will get worse. It's making sure that you eat the right foods. There is some interesting stuff. I'm going to go to a conference in about a month or maybe it's a couple weeks, talking a little bit more about diet and nutrition and how that relates to healing and things. Uh, because it, the, the substances that you put in your body do seem to have a way, that, you know, affect the way that you heal. I mean, if you're just eating Twinkies all day, you're not going to heal. Your body is not going to get the nutrients it needs. You need to avoid toxic stuff. As I said, like cigarettes are bad. They poison the blood. They poison your body's ability to heal. Um, there's also some other interesting things associated with it. Toxic people, as I said, toxic environments, like poor work environments do amplify this pain experience. And lastly is stress and social well-being is, is understanding the role that stress has when it comes to this. You know, stress and pain are, are very tightly interwoven. They're going hand in hand in a lot of situations. And if you are not doing something to actively engage and control your stress, your pain is not going to improve. And oftentimes it will get worse over time. All right, so I was going to touch on a couple more things, but I've talked too long. And I'm just going to put one little plug here at the end uh, because it's a little bit exciting. I've been uh, very busy, and last week my Kindle book came out called The Seven Questions You Need to Know Before Seeing Your Doctor. And that is, it was basically a book I took from episode one, the very, very first episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. I expanded it. I deepened it. I made it much more easy to understand. People that have read it say that it's an easy, easy read. Check it out because I think that you'll enjoy it and I definitely think it'll provide some use for you if you ever have to go to a doctor's office. But until then, I hope you stay well and I will talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. 